Hey, deserving listeners, I got a lot of emails about narcissism, so I thought I would answer your questions. I, I also uh, just now put out a call on Discord and the Facebook fan page asking people to submit their questions on narcissism. So let's get into it. Uh, listener Laura from Alabama wrote in a while ago and said, Can someone who identifies as an empath become a narcissist? I have been friends with my closest friend for 15 years. The older we get, the more self-absorbed she becomes, the more and the more unwilling she is to admit fault or wrongdoing. Yet she is an empath. Can she also be a narcissist? End of email. Well, first, let's try to define what an empath is. This is a non-clinical construct, meaning that it is not discussed in the literature at all, as far as I can tell. Only something that is discussed online. And just because it's discussed on a website called like Psychology Today or something does not mean that it's a legit psychological construct. Now, that doesn't mean that it's not a useful construct, because there are uh, non-clinical constructs that can be useful. But usually what happens in psychology is that if in the common culture there is a term that's being used, eventually clinicians will start doing research on it. They'll start uh, writing dissertations about it, and it'll become a clinical construct. And the, the empath construct has been around for decades and has yet to become, in my circle, a, an, a, a legit clinical construct. Now, that isn't, it's fine, people use it, but when something becomes a legit psychological concept, it's researched, it's defined, it's um, established as something that is that exists in science. So we don't have any confirmation of that, and it's really uh, borne out in the criteria. I just looked at the, you know, top 10 hits when you look at, you know, am I an empath on Google? And I made a list of these criteria. Uh, these are the criteria co compilation compiled from various different definitions of what it is to be an empath. Uh, you absorb you absorb others' emotions, so that's a pretty common criterion. You feel big feelings often. You feel vibes in rooms. You get people more than other people do. You understand people more than other people do. You're wise. You are psychic. You have ESP. You can read people's minds, literally. You're highly affected by things in the news. You love people more than other people do. You care more about others and animals. You can detect lies. Your relationships are highly volatile. You can heal others easily. You are easily hurt. You have good intuition. You like nature. You struggle with boundaries. You are anxious in crowds. You're connected with the universe. People come to you with their problems. You are highly sensitive to sounds and sensations. You need time alone to recharge. You react strongly to conflict. You don't fit in. You see the world in a unique way, and people think you're overly sensitive. End of criteria list. So <clears throat> there are a few things that I'll say about this list of criteria. One is that a lot of things on this list, really, there's no way to... Uh, scientifically measure that, you know, someone saying that, um, I don't know, you like nature or something. That's a hard one to know because most people like nature or you love more than other people do. Well, how do you know that you have more love to give than other people do? There's almost no way that you could define that. And statements like this are like astrology or when a psychic reading happens, they're cold reading people that you can say pretty much, you can say things like this and people will be like, oh my God, that's so me. Because a lot of people agree with these things. A lot of people secretly believe that they have a lot of love to give. A lot of people secretly believe that they're kind of psychic, you know, or they're wiser than others or that, <clears throat> you know, and a lot of people are anxious in crowds, you know. The, these kinds of things are, um, you know, maybe personality traits. The, so, so that's one thing to look at is that it does the list... Uh, lend itself to science. The other thing to ask ourselves about this list is, do these uh, um, uh, things hang together? So we, we talk about things hanging together or cohering, um, like with borderline personality story, we'll, we'll talk about that, or narcissistic personality story, since I'm getting into that today. When we look at human beings, we tend to see some personality traits and behaviors hanging together. They 
coalesce into a, you know, they tend to gravitate towards each other. People tend to, when you see one, you tend to see others. You know, if someone brags a lot, then there's a greater chance that that person will also have neglect in their past who will think of themselves as better than others, who will have a lot of envy for others, who will talk a lot, who won't let other people talk, you know, these kinds of things. Uh, who tend to be more dominant in a relationship, very achievement-oriented. You know, oriented. So these are narcissistic traits, and they hang together. The, they describe what we call a, a construct in personality and in psychology. Whereas when you just list a bunch of, you know, like type A personality is, is something that uh, is like this, that there used to be this construct of type A personality, someone who was highly driven, who worked long hours, who was often stressed, who was dominant, who, you know, there's, there's all these lists of, of uh, I can't remember all the criteria, but when you actually try to find if these personality traits correlated or associated with each other or hung together, they did not. You could find someone who was highly driven, and but they wouldn't be extremely dominant or something, you know, and uh, the same goes for these, this empath list of criteria. I'm, I'm guessing, I don't know, but if we did research, we wouldn't, plus the list is so long, uh, we wouldn't find that a lot of them would hang together. Now, some of them will, which I'll get, get into in a second. Um, <clears throat> so that's the first reaction I have to this very long list. It's just, the other thing we want to look at is how did people come up with this list? All the articles that I saw were just people just saying things. And when we look at personality, we actually use science to study human beings and see what personality traits hang together, what personality traits seem to be associated with each other. You know, there's a thing called borderline personality that when we find people who tend to who fit this criteria, then there tends to be a, a lot of similar histories, a lot of similar futures, a lot of similar presence, a lot of similar uh, uh, treatment protocols that tend to work with them, a lot of similar problems that these people present with. And they, they tend to under people with borderline tend to understand each other. So with empath, when you just hear this long list of you're wise, you're psychic, your relationships are volatile, you like nature, you're anxious in crowds. Um, you know, I, I don't imagine that these things really hang together, but I think parts of these do, which again, I'll get into in a second here. All right. So that's what we'll say. But now, and here's my take on the empath thing. And I'll get into narcissism in a second, but I just want to talk about the empath thing. So I think there's a lot of people who are attracted to the internet, you know, discourse about the empath construct. And a lot of people come to it. And I think uh, there's the first group of people I'll talk about are some people are just very good at reading other people. And you'll hear me talk about this. Uh, like Bob is actually pretty good at reading other people and very sensitive to other people because he was abused growing up. And there's a lot of roads to this. Uh, you can be preoccupied. You could just be this way too. I think some people are just kind of born more, uh, you know, focused on other people. Sometimes you'll see infants and they'll just see, they just have a lot of eye contact with you. And I think some people are just born just more fascinated with human beings. But of course, if your family life made you more, uh, you know, if you're being abused, it's very important. Or if your parent has, an, you know, an alcohol problem, it's very important for you as a child, you know, depending on your role, to be extremely focused and hypervigilant about what the state of your parents are, or the people in your family are, because your life really depends on you being able to read them. I'll never forget, I had a client who said that every day when her father came home from work, she would watch him walk up the street from the front window because she could tell if he, how drunk he was based on how he was walking up to the house. And uh, how drunk he was highly determined how good or bad her evening was going to go. And so if you are in that habit and your neurons are all firing uh, in that direction, then you might be extremely good at picking up other people's emotions. Your relationships might be volatile. You might have a lot of empathy towards other because you're feeling more people's feelings. You might have good quote unquote intuition. You have, uh, you can pick up on the vibes of rooms. You might absorb people's emotions because you have a bad differentiation essentially. And so I think some people are calling themselves empaths when I would call them either parentified or, 
you know, adult child of alcoholic or preoccupied attachment or borderline personality or something like that. Um, and, and so I think for those people calling themselves empaths, it's fine because if they're focusing primarily on just how above average their ability is in terms of noticing other people's emotions. And I think that's fine. The second group of people I think are just narcissistic about their own power and that they, they believe they have special powers, like that they can read minds and they can tell when people are lying when that's empirically impossible. And so they, I think, say they're an empath when if you dug down a little deeper, they're just uh, putting on this facade of narcissistic superiority because they have extremely low self-esteem. I, th I think another group of people who come to the identification of empath are actually suffering from some kind of thought disorder or they're on a spectrum. And this is something that I don't talk about very often. It's not really my specialty, but I, I've, I've certainly studied this and treated people like this is that, you know, we understand people are you know, schizophrenic or um, delusional mania, this kind of thing, schizoaffective disorder. And, and they're in the you know throes of a psychotic break. They believe they can, read minds they believe there are lasers in space that are causing covid or something the the world is flat or the devil is here or something you know uh hillary clinton is a is a lizard person and these are well understood everyone you know it's depicted enough in culture that we understand that some people have a break from reality well uh there's a spectrum here for some people when they lose uh their sense of reality it's very obvious, but for others, it can be subtle where they just kind of break from reality and they're still basically functioning uh, well enough in society that you might not even diagnose them. And I, I actually know people like this and for clients in, in my personal life who are just way more prone to fantastical thinking, in my opinion, by the way. So they are much more easily... Uh, they, they, they believe things much more easily and they get more fascinated with things that don't make a lot of sense. They, they come up with ideas that don't make a lot of sense. And it's subclinical, meaning that it's not causing any kind of problem in their life. And so that's, a, I think, another reason why some people would come to this identification of empath because they have this magical way of thinking. You know, while I'm on the topic, um, you know, schizotypal personality disorder um, can be some of those people. Anyway, um, Another group of people who come to the identification of empath are some people believe in a sort of religion of psychicism, you know, new age people. It's part of their meaning making system of the world. And, you know, the way that a Christian believes that uh, God had a son who manifested on earth and was um, sacrificed for the sins of humanity and rose from the dead. And, uh, there are some people who believe in a connection with the universe and, and the way they talk about it is very much a religion. They might not call it a religion and they might not think of it as supernatural, but uh, as you know, many Christians don't think of it as supernatural. They think of it as science. You know, the earth is 6,000 years old, that kind of thing. And I, I think that some people believe they're an empath. I think this is a minor part of the group, but I think some people who identify as an empath are, if you just investigated their life in general, they, they just have a general meaning-making system that involves lots of connection with the universe, if that makes any sense. And then as they experience the world and as they go online, they're like, oh, this describes me. I have ESP. I can read people's minds. I pick up on other people's vibes. I, I'm highly, I absorb nature. You know, I, I can, I, I have empathy for the ecology of a park, you know, this kind of thing. And there's nothing wrong with having that belief system. There's just something problematic when people claim that there's a scientific basis for it. Um, and another group of people that I think is a pretty, pretty big part of the empath group are what we call highly sensitive people or gifted people. And I've done episodes on this. You can Google it. I've interviewed people who are highly sensitive or gifted and they describe it pretty well. But in a nutshell, the theory goes, it's hard to know because our science just isn't very good at measuring this sort of thing, but there seems to be some <clears throat> evidence that some people are just extreme. This is how I see it. And, and I know this kind of coincides with how other people see it, is that some people are 
they just they have a nervous system that is extremely uh, ramped up, if you will. <laughs> like their nerves uh, in general throughout their body and their brains and their arms and their spine, they fire much more quickly and much more readily than other people do. And <clears throat> when you have a nervous system that is just, and it makes sense, right? That some people would just be born, you know, some people are born with more uh, muscles or their capacity to build more muscles is greater than someone else's. Uh, and it makes sense that possibly it makes it, it coheres with genetics and with variability among humans that for some of us, we might be a little bit more, there's some kind of a dial uh, on biology that ramps up some people's just general uh, susceptibility to nerves. So if you understand how nerves, and I'm not a biologist, but I, I've taken a fair amount of biology courses in my time getting my doctorate and uh, if i might <laughs> butcher the science language when you uh, nerves are set up to, i don't know if all nerves are this way but a lot of nerves are set up as a system of they receive input somehow either from the outside world or from other nerves and depending on the signal strength that's coming to the nerve cell the nerve will either do nothing or will fire. It's sort of um, a, a yes or no kind of a thing. And when you add up all the nerves in our body, then you have what we have. But it's possible that for some nerves, they are just, uh, for some people, they have an, uh, some sort of genetic difference that makes their nerves just more uh, ready to fire. So, for example, um, with highly sensitive people or gifted people, they just are when they see someone's emotion they see it much more vividly when they hear something like a you know a siren they they hear it much more uh, much more bigger and this isn't to be confused with autism that's a completely different uh, experience but um and highly sensitive people or gifted people can sometimes do really well in school they they also they can also do really poorly in school because you can imagine if you're overwhelmed with sensations you might have a harder time whereas if you have support or you're you know not too sensitive you might your your if your brain is working quickly you might learn quicker you're more quick on your feet mentally that kind of thing so i think for some people who we might call highly sensitive or gifted they might also call themselves an empath okay so that's my little lecture on the empath uh uh construct again I think um, for me, if it was a highly sensitive person calling themselves an empath or someone who is just very good at reading other people's emotions, then I'm cool with it. But the other paths to that identification, I find dubious, depending. I'd have to talk to him. But anyway. Okay. So now let's talk about narc. So you're getting back to Laura, your question, you know, empath and narcissism. So let, now let's talk about um, what a, a narcissist is. So let's read your email here. So you say, the older we get with your friend, the more self-absorbed my, my friend becomes and the more unwilling she is to admit fault or wrongdoing. Yet she is an empath. Can she also be a narcissist? So I, I, I discussed, so you're, you're saying, can my friend be, you know, I know my friend is an empath. So you didn't give any criteria as to what that means. So I don't, I don't know what that means, but then you're also saying, you know, can she also, can my friend who's an empath also be a narcissist? So what is a narcissist? Well, the answer to that is, I don't know. Cause again, that's not a clinical term. We have narcissistic personality disorder, but a narcissist is a lay person's term. And particularly the way it's used on the internet. Are we talking about people with narcissistic personality disorder? Are we talking about people who are self-absorbed? According to your email, just contextually, you're saying that your friend is unwilling to admit fault or wrongdoing. Is that what a narcissist is? I don't know. And I find the internet to be not a great, um, I don't know, not very consistent and not very convincing when it starts to use the word narcissist. And I, I kind of wish people would stop using it and, and use some other descriptive term, you know, and, and the, the, I think there's also this uh, mistake that people make on the internet today that 
you know, they've they've heard, you know, sort of about this thing called narcissistic personality disorder. And then there's all this talk about, you know, he's a narcissist or she's a narcissist. You know, my mom's a narcissist or, you know, my husband is a narcissist or this politician is a narcissist. If you're just saying they're self-absorbed, then just say self-absorbed because it's much more descriptive. And as a for me as a listener, I'm not going to I'm not going to cringe at that. When I hear that person is a narcissist, what I think people are saying is it's like you're a different sort of person, you know, like you're a racist. When you call someone a racist, which is another problematic term in a lot of ways, people, I think, are saying you are almost like a different sort of human. You know, there are the non-racists and then the racists. And, you know, it depends on how you're thinking, but I, I, I personally don't think about it that way. I think everyone has bias that manifests in racist attitudes depending on the person to varying degrees that will manifest in racist uh, behaviors anyway. But what is a narcissist? Are we saying that there's this thing called a narcissist and then there are people who are not narcissists? So I, I don't know what people are talking about. And I think that it's a way of dehumanizing. It's a, it's a way of, I think a lot of people, this is just anecdotal from the internet, but I think a lot of people on the internet feel hurt by someone, you know, like this email or in there, like my friend, she just won't admit that uh, she, anything's her fault or in her email is longer, uh, so, you know, talking about how her friend is basically a jerk face, you know, that won't admit that, that she does anything wrong. There's a lot of reasons why someone won't admit fault. It could be because they suffer from narcissistic personality disorder, but there are a thousand other reasons that are probably more likely than suffering from a very rare personality disorder. They could be uh, immature. They could be undifferentiated. They could feel threatened. They could uh, actually not be wrong. And you could be wrong because uh, uh, you're the one who can't admit that you're wrong, you know? So there's a lot of paths to a friend saying, you know, I, I didn't do anything wrong. I don't know what you're talking about. And there's this knee-jerk reaction in maybe Western society of like, oh, that person's a narcissist. It feels better to people like, oh, I've labeled them. There's something broken about that person. That's why this is going bad for me. This is That's why I feel so, you know, uh, hurt. And, and I'm also being gaslit by that person, you know, which I'll get into later, uh, maybe in another episode. Um, <clears throat> so my answer to your question is, you know, she's an empath. Can she also be a narcissist? Is it depends on your definition of empath and it depends on your definition of narcissist. But yes, absolutely. People who identify as empaths because there's no there's no clinical criteria for empath. So we would just have to ask people, do you consider yourself an empath of which there are dozens of lists completely different from each other of what that means? So some can someone identify as an empath and also suffer from narcissistic personality disorder and or be described by others as a quote unquote narcissist? Then yeah, absolutely. Um, these two can be related. You know, if, if you're, if you identify as an empath, one of the roads, as I, uh, said earlier is that you are narcissistic about who you are and you actually believe that you can, uh, read other people's minds and that you're, you know, you have these sort of special powers. And so the identification of empath actually emerges from a, a narcissistic personality. Uh, so there's that. But they could also not be related. You know, someone could just be, uh, they could have grown up in an alcoholic home and just are very good at reading other people's minds because, you know, other people's feelings because it was very imperative that they do that. And uh, they also are self-absorbed or also, you know, have narcissistic personality disorder. But anyway, um, let's read another email. All right, this next email is from Anonymous Patron. She writes, I've heard you say on the podcast that you think that narcissistic personality disorder and borderline personality disorder are kind of the same disorder. Can you elaborate on this? End of email. Yeah, absolutely I can, and I'm glad to because I think I said it in passing in the past, and I feel like it definitely needs to be elaborated. Um, I'm not going to go into too much detail because I don't want to get in the weeds, but I think I can briefly summarize my findings. And of course, in the beginning of my, well, not of course, but in the beginning of my career, I did not see these at the same because they're described extremely differently. But in my 25 years of treating people with personality disorders, I have come to realize that narcissism and borderline 
are very close cousins to each other or siblings. And I think that's why they're, uh, you know, in the same cluster in the DSM and in the research literature. Okay, so let's talk about narcissistic personality. And again, this is the construct in the DSM and in the psychoanalytic and psychodynamic literature, not the way it's discussed on the internet. It is a uh, condition derived from trauma, and this isn't discussed in the DSM. Uh, this is in the psychodynamic literature, and, and this is my way of describing it, which is uh, potentially a little unique. But um, So the trauma to the individual suffering from narciss narcissistic personality disorder is that they were devalued and humiliated. They were made to feel worthless. They were not given enough attention and they were feeling abused and or neglected somehow. Now, this can happen when you're very young. Usually it does from zero to four years old. So it could be a misperception on the child's part. It could be an outgrowth of parents being uh, you know, overworked or you know, parents who have too many children or something. There's a, there's a lot of roads to a child at the age of 18 months feeling devalued or humiliated or worthless or not given enough attention. And what the child develops is a way of thinking and a way of coping that later we would call narcissistic personality disorder. They assume that they are uh, in the process of being devalued or ignored or put down because that's usually what's happening. And they, as a result, constantly believe and assert that they are important and valued. So they feel devalued, and their way of coping with that is to assert to themselves and others that they are more important and more valuable than other people are. And they're in a constant state of that because they're in a constant state of feeling devalued by themselves and by others. It's usually subconscious, but that, that's what's happening. Okay. So to the borderline individual, their trauma is usually around abandonment, but it's also at its base level rejection, similar to narcissistic personality disorder people. And these individuals learn in order to attain safety that they must assume that others are in the process of rejecting them and that they need to make their attachment needs very noticeable. So borderline and narcissism can look very different. And some people think of them as sort of opposite sides of the spectrum, but I don't. I consider them to be shades off from each other. Evidenced by the fact that when we uh, do research on evaluators of narcissism and borderline, that a lot of clinicians will, you know, uh, will mix these up. So you, you'll present a, a patient to a hundred clinicians, and some will label narcissism and some will label borderline. Um, I, I don't, I can't remember the study, but I remember reading research that showed that if the individual, the patient was male, they were more likely to be labeled narcissism, narcissistic. And if they were female, they were more likely to be labeled borderline. So same vignette, same symptoms. And based on gender, we're like, oh, that person's narcissistic and, or that person's borderline. So that should tell us something as well that, cause it's not like if you present a vignette, people would be like, oh, bipolar or ADHD, you know, you don't get those things or you shouldn't get those things mixed up. God knows if, I mean, people get those two, maybe I should pick something easier. Um, you know, social anxiety disorder with major depression or something, you know, you're not going to get those two mixed up. Usually, you know, maybe you would get those mixed up, but anyway, um, so underlying both narcissism and borderline is a devaluation. One is through uh, more abandonment and there, and the child learns with, you know, with borderline, they generally believe. So let me even go deeper than this. Both narcissistic people and borderline think there's something wrong with them because the world has shown them that. But the borderline person just gives into that and says, yes, there is something wrong with me and I need to do extra things to make sure that I can get love and attention because if I'm just me, I'm not going to get it. Narcissistic people, though, early in life, they cut themselves off very effectively, depending on their level of pathology, from any notion that they're abandonable or rejectable or devalued and trick themselves into believing that they are superior and are in a constant state of need, needing to assert that superiority to others in order to distract themselves from this notion of devaluation. And so uh, both narcissistic people and borderline people, their, their baseline trauma is devaluation-based or rejection-based. 
And when I would treat people with, with narcissistic personality disorder, that's when I started to bump into this thing. You know, I, I think I will sometimes say underneath every narcissistic person is a borderline person or, you know, underneath every avoidant person is a preoccupied person. It's a similar thing in that it, I, you know, cause I would be treating these narcissistic people and it would take me months to diagnose them, by the way. It, it's a, you know, people don't usually, sh- I've never had anyone show up to my office and say, I'm narcissistic personality disorder. Please treat me. Um, it was something that I would diagnose over, over time. And I would, start to help them, you know, I, 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 got, I would start to say, oh, I get it, you know, they're, because they would be, the counter-transference with a narcissistic person is feeling like you're, like I'm devalued, I, I like the narcissistic person will talk a lot and will say like, oh, I, I, you know, I might throw something out like, well, you know, have you thought about that? The narcissistic patient will be like, oh yeah, I thought about that years ago, you know, they'll, they'll say um, that, yeah, that's pretty simple psychology stuff, I already knew that, and the the vibe that you would get as a therapist is, is to be very devalued because they're uh, projecting their devalued self into you as the clinician and, and make, you know, through projective identification, making you feel that way. And over time I, I would learn like, Oh, that's right. I, I, the corrective experience for these individuals is I have to actually make them feel valued while actively fighting against the reactivity that I feel compelled to say, which is like, stop treating me this way. You know what I mean? I'm like, don't devalue me. I'm a, you know, I've been a therapist for 10 years and you, you can't devalue me. You're not a therapist. You know, there's this, there's this knee jerk reaction from therapists, including me that would sometimes even give into that. But so as I would uh, help the narcissistic person feel valued, and focus on their vulnerability and their emotions as best I could while not, you know, reacting in an undifferentiated manner to the narcissistic person's attacks, of which there would be many similar to borderline. And I would see that the narcissistic person was extremely vulnerable. I would find that they would, they were just, uh, uh, you know, underneath this veil of, grandiosity and superiority was just a vast sea of unbridled pre-verbal emotions that they had no way of dealing with. They could not even look at those emotions. It was just like terrifying to them in the same way that it is for borderline. I was like, oh, underneath this, you know, and after, I don't know how many times it happened, um, and every person with narcissism was different, but the, this underlying trauma was the same. I'd be like, oh, underneath every narcissistic person is a borderline person. Because you know, borderline people are, they're, they're, they wear their hearts on their sleeve. You, you know a borderline person is suffering. And so that's kind of why I say it. But the other side is true as well, that underneath every, uh, well, uh, I don't know if I want to say this because I'd have to do a mental inventory, but... I would say that there's a good percentage of people with borderline who are also narcissistic, who believe that their perspective is superior to others, that their needs are more important than others, that uh, when um, they, you know, they're in a fight with their spouse, they are very righteous. The borderline person might be, you know, and, and so that can be a, you could call that narcissism. Some, you know, many people with borderline who haven't been treated or don't haven't achieved some security will have a really hard time admitting there's, that they've done anything wrong because they are similar to people with narcissistic personality, desperately trying to cover up the fact that they feel worthless by uh, coming across as superior to themselves and to others. So that's why they're related. Having said that, people with uh, there are some people, so, well, let me think about this. When I think about all the patients that I've treated with personality disorders in this category, because I've treated people with, you know, personality disorders, not, these are the two main personality disorders people talk about, but um, pretty much every personality disorder has entered my office. But when I think about these two, there are people that are extremely quintessentially narcissistic and there are people that are extremely quintessentially borderline. And then there are people kind of in the middle who, uh, to be honest, when I conceptualize them, I don't think of them as narcissistic or borderline. I just think of them as kind of like this 
uh, narsa borderline <laughs> or border cystic or something. And I don't, I don't think about them in that language system. I, and even with people with narcissistic personality disorder, I don't think about them in that um, language system. I, I think about them in terms of their relational traumas. Anyway, let's take a break and we get back more emails. All right. This next email is from patron Natasha from California. Patron Natasha, you are slowly becoming as infamous, <laughs> infamous, as famous as famous patron Linden. You know, famous patron Linden has been around for many years, and so have you, Natasha. And both you, Natasha, and Linden have flown in to our live events and met us in person. And Natasha and Linden, you both write in very excellent questions all the time. So uh, I think, Natasha, we might start calling you famous patron Natasha. <laughs> also, whenever I get an email from you, Natasha, I think about how we met uh, uh, later, you know, because you came to the show, we met there, but, you know, we were going out afterwards and and uh, I was so tired by the time we went to this karaoke place with Berto and I remember just being a lump on a log. So whenever I think about you, I think about being a lump on a log in a bad way. <laughs> but anyway, I will not be a lump on the log and I will read your email right now. Does passive aggressive include narcissism? I sometimes think about my behavior while enlisted. How I could, oh, I sometimes think about my behavior while I was enlisted, how I could be self-destructive because I'd be overtaken by the sense of being above a certain task. So I would passive aggressively take a long break or do some other task I felt was more fitting to me. I often felt ashamed after. Is it possible to be on the passive aggressive spectrum without a heavy dose of narcissism? End of email. Well, first, this is an excellent email. And similar to famous patron Lennon, you are integrating many things that we've talked about in the podcast before. So it shows that you're one listening and two very smart. The other thing I'll say is this very good observation of self. Uh, famous patron Natasha, uh, very differentiated, uh, uh, you know, discussion of yourself. Yeah, you know, it, it takes a big person to be able to admit to yourself and to others that you can uh, behave in a passive aggressive way. All right, so let's talk about passive aggressive personality disorder. In a nutshell, these individuals learned that they could not express anger or assertiveness when they were young children. They uh, were also constantly feeling as though they were being treated unfairly. So essentially what happened with these children is they were probably being abused, particularly when they were asserting themselves or, you know, because children express anger all the time. It's like, I don't want to go to bed or something. And what uh, this, these children go through is the parents or caregivers will punish them in some very noticeable, consistent way whenever the child is angry or whenever the child is just asserting their needs or something. And so they learned, I cannot express anger uh, directly, for sure. I cannot be assertive directly. That's just never, ever going to work for me. That's a completely unsafe situation. These individuals might ex be extremely nice on the outside, but on the inside, they are often very hostile and uh, are in a constant a state of feeling as though they're being treated unfairly by others, even though they're, they're not, because that's the uh, part of the personality disorder. It was true when they were four and when they were 10, but not, but not necessarily true when they're an adult. And so these individuals have a lot of hidden hostility or passive aggression. And there's a, you know, there's thousands of different behaviors that can be uh, uh, use as a way to hide your hostility because the idea goes is you know if you ha when you have anger when you have assertiveness and you feel like you can't let it out uh, you have to try to express it somehow and so people will do subtle put downs or they will cheat on their partners as a way of trying to get back at their partners and not tell their partner and that's the weird thing about passive aggression personality disorder is that it, it's so subtle if you are the recipient of the passive aggression, you might not ever know about it. That's how subtle it is. Um, someone emailed in and talked about their passive aggressive personality disorder and how they would break into computers of people that they knew. She was saying that she was very good at uh, break. You know, she had this 
um, interesting relationship with a teacher, I believe in her university. And she somehow gained access to her professor's office and somehow gained access to her professor's computer and somehow gained access to like everything about her professor. And, and she didn't, you know, she didn't do anything to the computer. She didn't mess with any files, but it, it just felt good to her to somehow have power over her professor in this way. And, uh, passive aggressive people can can be very secretive and can be very good at being secretive. And uh, people with passive aggressive personality disorder often are told that they should be a spy or a CIA agent, this sort of thing. Um, another thing that people will do is they might secretly spread lies about someone. Uh, so these are hidden hostility acts that um, now, to be clear, if you're breaking into someone's computer or you're cheating on someone, uh, you know, infidelity, that's not necessarily a sign of passive aggression. But if you are passive aggressive, those are some of the behaviors you might use to hide your hostility towards others. Also, passive aggressive people uh, tend to not always be dependent on others and be indecisive and needy. So dependent personality disorder and passive aggressive personality disorder are sometimes considered the same thing. Or you could say that Passive aggressive personality disorder is a subset of depre- of dependent personality disorder. But anyway, so your question, famous patron Natasha, is does passive aggressive include narcissism? Because you know you're saying that you're saying that you would passive aggressively take a long break when you didn't want to do something when you were enlisted, or you do some other task that you felt was more fitting for you. So a superior is telling you to do something. And saying, hey, I want you to swab the deck or whatever <laughs> they were telling you. And in secretly on the inside, you would feel a number of things potentially if you, you know, were having a passive aggressive moment. One, you would feel like you were being treated unfairly. So because remember, the central feature of the passive aggressive experience is when you're zero through five, you were often being treated unfairly. And so there's this schema of authorities are always treating me unfairly or people close to me are always treating me unfairly. And so I'm being told to swap the deck, but that's unfair. And maybe it was unfair. You know what I mean? But the, it might be exaggerated by the traumas. Right. And then the second thing is not only am I being treated unfairly, but I cannot express my anger uh, directly because very bad things will happen. You know, because other people, they might say like, Hey, I don't want to swab the deck. Can I do something else? Or I don't know, they'll just have some other functional way of expressing their anger about it. But to the passive aggressive person, they do not feel safe to express their anger or their displeasure. And so they have to be very nice on the outside and hold their, and, and that only exacerbates the hostility on the inside. Cause the other thing is, is the hostility isn't just from this one moment. It builds up from several incidences, right? So the passive aggressive individual has a lot of built up pent up hostility and, and assertiveness and anger towards others. And so in your mind, you're thinking, you know, I don't want to do this. I'll do some other task that is more fitting for me. And you're saying, is that narcissism? Because it kind of does look like narcissism, right? It's like you think you're superior to the task. And so you're doing something that is more fitting to your superiority. Well, it's hard to know exactly. I'd have to talk with you for a while. But the way that you make it sound, it doesn't sound like narcissism. It sounds like passive aggression, which is there's a childishness to passive aggressive personality and to dependent personality, right? And when you're three years old or seven years old and you're being told what to do and you're in a bad mood or you're not into it, then it's really common for children to be like, no, I don't want to. And to come up with any reason that you know they can come up with in order not to do it. Um, children might also think like, no, you know, like you tell your four-year-old to pick up their toys, you know, okay, it's time to pick up your toys and go to bed. And the kid might be, uh, say, might think like, no, I would rather play a video game or um, why don't you pick up the, the toys? Like you're the mommy, you pick up the toys. And you would look at that, you know, if you really use the narcissistic uh, construct, you'd be like, oh my God, my four-year-old is narcissistic. She doesn't pick up her toys. She thinks that she's better than that. She thinks that she's superior and she thinks like I'm her slave and I'm going to pick up her, her toys. No, we don't say that, right? We just say, well, you're a kid <laughs> and you're inherently narcissistic of a four-year-old. You know, it's, it's normal for four-year-olds to be way more self-centered 
and not as empathetic towards others uh, as they will be when they're older, right? Depending on how we define empathetic. But point is, is that when you retain that trauma and that experience and that mindset and you're 35, then it's going to come out in an adult manner. But the baseline feeling is the same of just like, I don't want to, you can't make me. I'd rather do something else and I'm, I'm not going to do it. I'm, I'm just, no, I'm not going to do it. So that's not narcissism. That's just right down the middle, passive aggressive personality. All right. This next, this next email is from anonymous listener. They write, why are narcissists often successful? I've noticed that many theories of narcissism argue that those with both narcissistic traits and NPD, narcissistic personality disorder, tend to achieve outsized success. By the way, I'm guessing some of you have noticed this. Uh, I started to notice it, that I say narcissistic so often that I have shrunk the word down to narcissistic. <laughs> I've, I've removed one of the syllables because I figure it's harder to say the full word. So I apologize for that. Um, I'm trying not to do it, but I also get wary of saying narcissistic so many times. So sometimes I'll say narcissistic personality or I'm guessing some of y'all notice that. But anyway, why are narcissists often successful? I've noticed that many theories of narcissism argue that those with both narcissistic traits and narcissistic personality disorder tend to achieve outsized success professionally. Why is this the case? Um, so uh, chiming in here, they, they, meaning those with narcissistic traits and the full-blown disorder, will achieve a lot of success and it, it it's a you know it's a it's a tendency right it's not everyone with narcissistic personality disorder is highly successful that is definitely definitely not the case <laughs> uh human beings are way too complicated for those kinds of generalizations but on average yeah uh, you could uh, probably easily say that they tend to achieve more in in life and you know and why is this the case well it's because they need it uh, and i was talking about narcissism earlier they need it to survive emotionally they need to feel superior to them you know they need to establish to themselves that they are superior they need other people to understand they're superior so not only will, might they choose a career that is seen as more you know if they have three career choices before them one's a janitor one's a doctor and one's a police officer then they're probably going to choose, you know, one of the second two careers because those are, those have more prestige, those have more power, and they desperately, desperately need that superiority in order to stave off the devaluation they feel on the inside. Uh, you go, you have another question here. If narcissism is pathological, why can it predict achievement? Well, it's a good question. So pathological is, is defined by causing problems in your life, right? Whether it's health or social or mental or something, you know, it's, it, it bites you in the butt somehow, you know, just, just having a narcissistic personality trait. Um, like for me, for example, I have a narcissistic personality trait in that I like to hear myself talk and, you know, on the, on the spectrum, if you, uh, line me up with a bunch of other people, you know, I'm definitely going to be above average in terms of my, um, how much I like to hear myself talk <laughs> and how much I want to say things. Whereas other people, you know, below me on the spectrum will just say like, you know, I don't, I don't need to say everything. And um, now there are people above me on the spectrum for sure. And I can certainly be in situations where I'm being very, very quiet because someone is over talking me. Um, so anyway, my point is, is that I have a little bit of narcissism and what that does for me is it helps me with the podcast. You know, I started the podcast. I'm yammering into a microphone right now. It gives me the motivation. It gives me the self-confidence. It gives me the drive to become a better podcaster, you know, because when people like y'all listen and um, say nice things to me, it actually uh, heals me to <laughs> fills me with this notion that, okay, I am a valued individual and I, I can get through the day a little bit better, but I'm not so pathological that 
I need everyone to, I need to constantly assert that I'm superior to everyone around me. You know what I mean? So I, I have a dash that, that uh, motivates podcaster behavior and, um, and, you know, getting into the weeds a little bit about podcasting. When I first started the podcast and really throughout, I've, I've, I'm a bit of a perfectionist and I, I never wanted the podcast to be, I always wanted it to be as best as it could be. Cause I, I listen to a lot of podcasts and I find there's a wide variety of, 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 um, you know, quality. And I never wanted to be one of those, you know, lesser quality podcasts out there. And so, uh, my dash of narcissism helps me to be very driven and to be very, almost like ashamed if I'm putting out something that isn't very good, but I'm so low on the spectrum that I don't alienate people around me that I'm working with. I don't alienate people that are in the audience. I don't, you know, constantly talk about myself or have to somehow brag all the time, but maybe a little bit of bragging, maybe a little bit of humble bragging, you know, that's a little annoying to the listeners, but not so bad that, you know, I'm constantly saying things like I'm the smartest person in the world or I am, you know, I just try to think of famous people saying narcissist, uh, you know, you, you can imagine what, if you can think of a famous narcissistic person, you know, the kinds of things that they say. And so, um, uh, so if narcissism is pathological, why can it predict achievement? Well, if you're low on the spectrum, then it's not going to become pathological, but if it becomes pathological, why can it predict achievement? And I, I don't have the research in front of me, so I don't know if it. I don't know if what the research says about narcissism and predicting achievement. There would be a problem with that research because to to die one to you know find out if someone you know if if you have a bunch of people in your research study and you're trying to figure out who has narcissistic personality disorder and who doesn't, that would be extremely difficult to do because personality disorders are not they don't lend themselves to like a survey. Uh, depression does. So you you could ask people 10 questions and get a pretty good index about how depressed that person is that day or how depressed they've been in that month or something. So, and then, you know, cause the way research works is you only have so much money and time. And so you, you get like a hundred people and you send them a survey and one thing measures how depressed they are. And then you say, you know, how, how achievement, how much achievement have you reached? And so that's another kind of squishy construct, right? Like how much has one person achieved? How do we, how do we put an index to that? Cause you have to, it all comes down to numbers, right? So if you're looking at so-and-so over here on a scale from one to 10, how much have they achieved? Whereas opposed to the person next to them, how much have they achieved compared to that? It's, it, that's a hard thing to answer. So not only are we trying to uh, just determine who is who has narcissistic personality disorder, which is hard, and a lot of clinicians don't even agree, we're also trying to determine how ach- how much someone has achieved in life, and then you're correlating those two things. So, you know, regardless of what research you found, uh, we, it's just one of the it's it's a squishy area. But uh, is it possible or even likely that people who with narcissistic traits are more uh, have quote unquote achieved more or, or seen as and that's maybe the key is that they often will be seen as they achieve more because that's that's the most important thing to the narcissistic particularly the person that's pathological high on the spectrum so often what you will find is that people with full-blown narcissistic personality disorder they might look like they're achieving a lot from the outside but if you are in the inner circle you know how horrible of a person they are or if you're in their family. So a very common complaint that I'll get from family members of people with NPD is they will say, everyone loves this person. Everyone loves her. Everyone loves him. And and they have no idea what she is like when she comes home. They have no idea what he's like when he comes home. When he comes home, he is a monster. And if they knew what he was really like, no one would like him. But he he's so good at putting on a facade for everyone that People think he's the nicest, kindest, wonderfulest. And people come up to me and say, "You, you must, you are so lucky to be married to that person." Um, so, yeah. You also ask the question: What attribute of narcissism causes the achievement? 
Well, the attribute, you know, many attributes, but two that pop into my mind are envy. So people who suffer from NPD are often very envious of others, very prone to envy of that person is superior to me. I must, I must get to their level. I must get what they have. And also they're very focused on being superior because if they are not seen as superior, then they have to think about how devalued they are. Another question you ask is, can people without high levels of narcissism also achieve professionally, or will they usually be surpassed by those with higher relative narcissism? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I would say most people who are successful do not have narcissistic traits. (laughs) So I don't know where you're coming from, anonymous listener, but it sounds like maybe you're feeling defeated or something, and you're like, ah, I don't have narcissism and I'm never going to achieve anything. No, absolutely not. Uh, Like I said, most people who have succeeded do not have narcissistic traits. And, uh, uh, and again, it depends on what we mean by achievement. But anyway, uh, is the achievement and success of narcissistic people healthy or is it detrimental? It's a good question. And I appreciate it because it gets at the uh, one of the hearts of the matter, which is that because uh, people believe that narcissistic or narcissists are evil and everything around them is evil, which is just not true. You can have full-blown narcissistic personality disorder and be a wonderful person. Having a personality disorder does not make you a bad person. <laughs> people with borderline personality disorder, people with narcissistic personality disorder, people with histrionic, people with antisocial personality disorder, people with psychopathic personality disorder, people with passive aggressive personality disorder, because you have a personality disorder does not mean you're evil, does not mean you harm other people, does not mean you're bad. So uh, uh, can narcissism cause behavior that can be evil? Sure. But evil behavior can come from a variety of places. So, um, you know, your question is, is the achievement of narcissistic people healthy or is it detrimental? You could argue that, uh, well, what can I say? Um, Off the top of my head, when I think about a lot of narcissistic individuals who achieved things, it really just depends on, you know, how do we look at an achievement as being good for society or not, right? Someone who invents the light bulb, for example, or propagates its manufacture, that's quite an achievement. The light bulb is ubiquitous in today's society. It, it's a big deal. You achieved a lot, but is it good for society that we have a light bulb? Yeah, it's hard, it's hard to know what's good or bad. Um, but yeah, so, you know, a narcissistic person can achieve something that is good and healthy for the world and very unhealthy. Someone without narcissistic personality disorder can achieve something that is good for society or unhealthy. They're, they're not related really. Um, and if anything, you know, people with narcissistic personality disorder they might actually be attracted to things that are good for society because they want to go down in history as having done something good and wonderful for society. And so anyway, uh, finally, if it is true that narcissists tend to achieve professional success, what is going on that our society seems to reward and incentivize narcissistic behavior? Um, so just chiming in here, there's that word narcissists again. I don't, I don't know what people mean by that, but I, I think what you mean is someone suffering from narcissistic personality disorder. Um, so you're saying if they, you know, tend to achieve success, what is going on in our society that seems to reward them? Well, we tend to follow confident people. We have a bias for confident people and it's proven in our political system, someone will be completely incompetent as a leader or as a politician, but they, if they come across as extremely confident, then they will get a lot of votes, which is very disconcerting as a follower, you know, as a voter, (laughs) as a non-leader in our society. It's very demoralizing to watch uh, politicians who know nothing about what they're talking about and uh but they're very confident in what they don't know and saying things and uh, they get 50 percent of the united states to vote from extremely upsetting also our society is based on capitalism which is explicitly designed to reward exploitation of resources you know 
I don't, I don't think people understand that, you know, if you've ever studied systems of societies, you understand this. We, you know, United States is, you can debate the nuances, but our system, our political system, our culture is geared towards capitalism, which is, uh, like I said, exploitation of resources, meaning that if you start a company and like a clothing company, then uh, and you uh, become a public company, particularly, and you have shareholders, your whole uh, culture and your whole mission is to make more money for the shareholders, right? Make more, more money for the owners. That's that's the reason why you started. You know, very few people start a business just for altruistic reasons. And even if it is for altruistic reasons, you need money to survive. You know, like uh, I was on the board for many years of Game to Grow, which was a nonprofit that used games in therapeutic ways. Go to gametogrow.org for more information, by the way. And we were a nonprofit and we uh, were trying to do good for the world. But in order to survive, we needed money. We needed to get grants. We needed to sell our services. We, you know, there was a bottom line. And if we didn't meet our bottom line, then the entire thing fell apart. So even if you're trying to do good things, you need money to survive because that's how our society is organized. And by contrast, other societies have been organized in more socialist ways where the government or the people will decide, hey, we need a thing called game to grow. And we're going to use tax dollars to pay for a thing called game to grow and game to grow can make money or not make money, but it doesn't matter because we want that thing to exist. We live in a capitalistic society that that is extremely rare (laughs) where society and or the government will just say, you know, regardless of how much money this entity or this corporation makes, we're going to support you. Um, So anyway, we live in a capitalistic society and when you open a business, like you, you start a, a restaurant, for example, you know, it might be partly based on your dream to, you know, make the awesome hamburger or something, but very quickly you become reduced to, okay, money in, money out. And one of the ways that you can survive as a business and make money for the owners is to exploit labor and is to, um, uh, destroy your competition even if it's not in the best interest of society to destroy your competition, even if it's not in the best interest of society that you only pay your employees a minimum wage, it doesn't matter because you're micro-focused as a corporation, as a capitalistic entity on increasing your income and decreasing your expenses. So when you are uh, suffering from narcissistic personality disorder, and you have a problem with empathy and you have a deep need to absorb as much money or power as possible, then uh, your personality traits fit very neatly into the society. Anyway, uh, you have another question. And what does this say about the many instances of leaders in recent years who seem to accomplish things but turn out to mistreat all the people around them? Yeah, uh, so you're saying, you know, you're observing leaders who... Uh, accomplish things, but turn out to mistreat, mistreat people around them. You know, there's a lot of diagnosing that's being thrown around. And I've done a whole deep dive on Donald Trump, for example. And I don't want to participate in that diagnosing from afar. But um, what do I say? Well, I've already said a lot about that. But yeah, can can a politician with narcissistic personality disorder rise in power and in getting a lot of votes even though they don't care about people and they're pretty much only uh, concerned about themselves absolutely and that's happened throughout history for thousands of years we have stories of that and can those individuals actually harm our society in the end because they're not actually interested in bettering society they're only interested in bettering themselves can that happen has that happened yes and the difference between today and in the past is today what we get is what we get. But in the past, these individuals would cause millions upon millions of deaths in large world-scale world wars. Uh, we don't have that anymore. So uh, I, I want people to put that in perspective. It doesn't mean that we don't fight back. It doesn't mean we don't vote. It doesn't mean we don't speak out. It doesn't mean we don't recognize the bad things that are still happening, of, of which there are. But 
we live in a much better world today than in the past. I mean, there were narcissistic people 50, 70, 100 years ago, and not just in the Western world, but all over the planet, who rose to power because of their narcissism and proceeded to commit genocide upon millions of people, depending on whoever it was that they needed to scapegoat in order to raise in power. And so, um, uh, so why am I saying that? I guess I'm saying that for my sake, honestly, because when I think about politicians today in my country who do not have uh, the people, the people's interest in mind, it's demoralizing. And, and as a way of, gaining perspective or being able to sleep at night. I'm just like, well, at least it's not as bad as it used to be. And maybe it'll be better in another hundred years. Anyway, I don't know. Okay. Well, um, I actually put out a call on discord and the Facebook fan page to ask questions and I never got to them, but I'll get to them in part two. So I will do that for Friday and everyone out there, please take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really, really do. (laughs) 